Greetings, this is Cody, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus. Uh, as part of a research project that I'm undergoing uh, for a book on recent trends, um, although I guess in a lot of ways they're not very recent at all, but a recent, uh, a recent enthusiasm, I suppose, for um, unhitching the Old Testament from the Christian faith, uh, I'm going to be talking to scholars who... Uh, kind of go toward that approach and, and, and find it valuable as well as scholars who are pushing back for, for, for one reason or another. And so uh, I'm going to be doing sort of a series of uh, recordings talking with um, those who, who have some strong opinions on this and who are knowledgeable on, on the subject. And uh, there may be some repetition here or there as I ask the same questions, but uh, I suspect that I'll be getting different answers and uh, different uh, nuances in the answers. So uh, I really appreciate you tagging along. I hope that you enjoy uh, the process. And uh, if at the end of it you'd like to get a hold of the book that I'm working on, that would be wonderful as well. Thank you. Enjoy. Dr. Michael Heiser is a Bible scholar who received his Ph.D. in Hebrew and Semitic Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's also the Scholar-in-Residence at Logos Bible Software. He's also the host of the Naked Bible Podcast and the author of books including The Unseen Realm and Reversing Herman. He does an amazing job uh, bringing the cookies down to a lower she uh, shelf, so to speak, uh, by helping lay people to understand scholarly-level discussion of the Bible. And I, I really appreciate you making the time to be here, Dr. Heiser. Yeah, I'm also a Red Sox fan. That's I have my <laughs> my uh, practice jersey on, and I, so, which means I'm really depressed right now. So. <laughs> they look well, terrible. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate I appreciate you dragging yourself out of bed to be here yeah. in your in your distress. <laughs> right. Well, and so so the reason I have you here, other than the fact that I appreciate your work and I'm just excited to talk to you, um, is. Uh, so basically, even though it's not really anything new, I'm seeing this kind of revamped attempt in popular and even you know scholarly Christian circles to try to uh, unhitch the Old Testament from our faith, I think as Andy Stanley says. And I'm interested in talking to scholars who both favor this approach, as well as those who don't, in order to kind of bring out some of these issues behind the unhitching movement and I guess sort of figure out what are our boundaries here? You know, what's too far to the left? What's too far to the right? How can we approach this and, and be true to, you know, how Jesus views the Old Testament and, and you know, th those kinds of things. So as someone who does an amazing job connecting the Testaments, I thought you'd be a great person to, to have on to talk about this subject. So I've got kind of a line of questions, but, but if you, anything occurs to you that you think would be helpful as we're talking, we can, we can take it wherever you'd like. Well, I, I, I guess I should say at the outset, I, I not only think it's absurd to disconnect the Old Testament from our faith, I don't think it's possible. Well, you know, pe people have this impression that the Old Testament, you know, since we have the New Testament, or even in the New Testament era, that the Old Testament was sort of this quaint artifact. Oh, we know it exists, and you know, we've heard of that, and we may have read that once or twice, or maybe even a lot, but now that's like, just kind of there, and it's there's no interaction with our faith now. That is ridiculous, because it would be hard to find a paragraph in the New Testament that doesn't either quote or allude, in other words, attach itself in some way to the Old Testament. It's not just an artifact sitting on a shelf somewhere, or a scroll sitting in a, in a synagogue somewhere. The New Testament writers wanted to link what they were saying to the Old Testament, and they did that in a spectrum of ways. So I don't know how you're going to get rid of it. I mean, literally, I just don't know how that's possible. I, I guess we can read our New Testament, and where it quotes the Old, we just sort of close our eyes there. <laughs> Or, you know, it's not even a question of going back, in, going back and looking at the Old Testament passage that is quoted, because in many cases it'll be quoted right in the New Testament text. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, the, these are just illusions. You know, there's, scholars refer to this as intertextuality, and it happens on every page of your New Testament. So when someone comes along and says, oh, we need to unhitch ourselves from that, that not only tells me they don't, know much about the Old Testament. They don't know much about their New Testament either. Mm -hmm. I just don't see it as a possible enterprise. So that, those are my general thoughts. Yeah. 
Well, so what about so kind of what Andy Stanley in particular is trying to do is to unhitch the Old Testament for evangelism purposes to basically say if we can you know have our sort of plan of salvation Romans Road or whatever then that that's all that we need and everything else is this is this baggage that uh, complicates people coming to Christ. Well, um, I mean you, you you can certainly never open the Old Testament and articulate the gospel. I mean, you could do that in one verse, okay, John 3, 16. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is the people you talk to might have a question. <laughs> They're not just going to sit there with a deer in the headlights look or turn off their brains or whatever. They might have a question, a theological question, that will require, for at least for a coherent answer, you to dip into other passages in the New Testament that do depend on the Old Testament for their uh, their meaning, you know, what they're trying to convey, or that might require you to actually go into the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So I sort of know what he means by that. In other words, we can articulate the gospel without this thing, mm-hmm. but good luck fielding questions. Yeah. I mean, just, just honestly. And, and if you get into some New Testament passages, again, that talk about things like you know, atonement or Christology, or you're just going to have to deal with the Old Testament to understand what the New Testament writer is trying to articulate. You know, most, you know, a good part of the time, they are writing directly to Jews. And to to make their case for evangelism or for, for some other point of theology, they must use the Old Testament. You say, well, what about the Gentiles? Well, most of the Gentiles they're writing to had a good amount of exposure to the Old Testament through the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So even when he's when, when writers are addressing Gentiles, you know, look at Galatians, look at, you know, uh, Romans. You know, the, the this is not an exclusively Jewish audience, but, but Paul over and over and over again, is referring back to the Old Testament. He's not doing that so he can talk inside baseball with his Jewish you know, comrades here or his Jewish brethren. He's doing that, and most of the time the New Testament writers use the Septuagint, because he assumes that his Gentile audience has some familiarity with Judaism through the Septuagint. Yeah. So, again, yeah, if you want to just say, I can spit out the gospel without quoting the Old Testament. Yeah, you can. But again, God forbid that you get into a discussion, you know, a theological discussion, because then you're, you're sort of tying one arm behind your back to have the discussion. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, and I also wonder, I mean, it seems to me sometimes when we talk about the gospel, that has maybe a meaning for us that um, isn't entirely biblical because it seems like you can point to like what Paul says about the gospel and he's focusing on maybe this kind of what we think of as like what you might call like the individual plan of salvation. Yeah. Um, but you know, Jesus uses the word in, in a much broader way. And and I kind of like what uh, Scott McKnight says when he refers to the gospel as the story of Israel resolved in the story of Jesus. And that seems to be, I mean, you can't do that at all without the old Testament. If that's right. how you're yeah, saying yeah, it. That, that's true. Even though I, I think it's bigger than that. It's the story of what God wants with humanity, mediated initially after the fall through the creation, you know, of Israel. Sure. And then, I mean, I think we even need to go back a further step, uh, you know, than that. But that's that's quibbling with with McKnight. Oh, I mean, yeah, no, but yeah, that's that's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, going back to even Adam, the way the way that uh, Paul talks about Adam, I mean, this whole yeah. first Adam, second Adam stuff is really. It, well, and Adam and Israel, there are deliberate, you know, correspondences struck there. And then with, since the Messiah is representative of Israel, it's no accident that we have Adam and Jesus correlations, too. You know, yeah. All that's just what it is. It's intentional. So let's say, let's say we, we sort of come to the conclusion that we can't unhitch the Old Testament, so we've got to have something here. Um, what about, and this maybe goes to questions of, of what it what it means for the Bible to be inspired, but what about the approaches of, of guys like uh, Greg Boyd or Keith Giles who, who would say that we, we start with this notion of who Jesus is, 
which they kind of defined beforehand. And then we test the Old Testament against that. And if it's if it doesn't sound like Jesus, this idea of Jesus that we have, then it's either uninspired or maybe it's some kind of divine accommodation uh, that obscures who God really is. And, and so then we, you know, kind of turn like, do like an origin kind of approach and we just read it spiritually through the lens of Christ. So anytime you read anything like the Canaanite massacre or whatever, you just go, okay, well, that doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. And so then you find some other way to read it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's naive. And, and I'll go as far to say I think it's under-informed. But let's, let's take the Canaanite thing. Yeah, you're right. That doesn't sound like the Jesus you know. But maybe you don't know the passages where the New Testament writers link Jesus to divine warrior imagery in the Old Testament. In particular, the eschatological ones. You know, when, when, when we have the second coming, and all those guys are going to affirm the second coming, Jesus is not coming back blowing kisses, okay? It, you know, there's a reason why he is adorned in the language of divine warfare, okay? And, and the second coming involves people and nations, regardless of, of what your, your particular eschatology is, this is the way that the New Testament writers characterize the eschaton. It is the reclaiming of the nations. It's not just this ethereal concept that has nothing to do with like literal people who inhabit the earth. You know, you can't just sort of stow it away in, in cosmology talk okay, or spiritual realm talk. It's a both and, it's not an either or. And, and, and so I would say, well, that is the Jesus that the New Testament knows. Hmm. It, it, just, it, it just depends on which advent you're talking about and which portion of the New Testament you're talking about. So I, I think that's just really kind of, you know, saying something and hoping people don't have a good grasp of all portions of their New Testament. Uh, it, you know, I, I just I don't think it really accomplishes anything. Yeah. You know, I, I have the, I have a thing about people shouldn't be lied to. You know, because th- they're going to find because of the internet. You know, be, because the, the church, you know, or, or a particular religious authority, they don't have a monopoly on information anymore. Um, so people will run into these passages. And they will read, you know, things that take them into some part of the Bible that doesn't really fit conveniently in, into your answer. Mm-hmm. So we, we ought to not pretend that these sort of dichotomies are as clean as we like to make them, because they're not. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it, it seems to me that you're right that we don't see a qualitatively different portrayal of God and, and Jesus than we do in the Old Testament. I mean, I think we can say that Jesus presents, you know, he, he's, he's the fullest revelation, he's the best revelation, he is God, whereas the Bible is not, so that's obviously a superiority. And you also have a difference in the covenants, but, but, but I think there's this question of whether or not Jesus would see what he was doing as something qualitatively different and not just different because it's in a different context or, you know, it's a different covenant than what you see in the old Testament. Well, I mean, Jesus is working the plan. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the old Testament, the plan was focused on one people group. Okay. That is, you know, plopped into a, a historical, you know, set of circumstances. You know, when, when you get out of, out of Pentecost, it's not one people group anymore. It's global. You know, and so we we don't have the same sort of theocratic mindset. You know, the, the theocracy was a toehold, you know, to, to reclaim the nations of the world. And we know how this was supposed to work. They were supposed to be a you know, kingdom of priests. And, you know, they were supposed to, you know, make the, the surrounding nations through the way they the way Israelites lived and what they did and, and how they lived, you know, like good grief, they, they worship a God and they don't even have an idol. Like, what's up with that? You know, it, it's supposed to generate questions. It's supposed to draw people. Now, we know that they failed gloriously in this. But the theocracy was a toehold. It, it, was, it was planned obsolescence. Okay, if you're going to incorporate the nations back into the people of God, by definition, the theocracy is going to become obsolete. 
it's going to become irrelevant in, in nationalistic terms. And that's no surprise to God. Again, that, that, that's part of the plan. So Jesus is still working the plan. He's just at a different stage of the plan where we don't have earthly, theocratic, you know, real-time uh, hegemony, you know, in mind or something like that. You know, now, now it's, it, it's much more expansive as, as things are supposed to be through, the, through evangelism, through the Great Commission. They're supposed to be moving back toward what God originally wanted in Eden, and that was to make all the earth, you know, like, like that place. Uh, that, that's the way, that's how, how God wanted things. And he, from the very beginning, enlists human participation to accomplish that. So now we have that same plan being worked through the means of evangelism. And it's not linked to geography or one people group or one nationality or one ethnicity. And, and that isn't plan B. That is a, uh, an advanced stage of plan A. So I, I tend to think, again, we, we, we try to create these dichotomies that aren't really dichotomies. Again, I, I think stages is a better way to, to look at those things. It's not like God chucked one plan and now we got another one here. Like we can draw this clean line of separation. Um, if the, the New Testament writers obviously didn't believe that because they're constantly hooking what they write back into the Old Testament. You know, they see a new Israel. They see a new, a new strategy here. But it's coherent with what has preceded, uh, you know, and the intention that God had. Yeah, well, a, a, a passage that comes to mind uh, for me is is Jesus before Pilate in John chapter eighteen and, and in verse thirty six, where Pilate says, "If you're supposed to be this king, then how come you're here in front of me, and I'm a, and I'm a, and I have the power to execute you?" <laughs> and Jesus says, "Well, my kingdom is not now of this earth." If it were, then my servants would fight. So he kind of links this idea of warfare with having a physical nation, which makes sense when you have a theocracy situated on a parcel of land, but it doesn't make much sense when you have a sort of universal spiritual kingdom that transcends borders and nationalities. And, and, when, it, and when it comes time, when, you know, again, in the, in the eschaton, when, you know, the, the glorified boots hit the ground, so to speak, then you do get that language again, because... You know, it, it's a time of judgment. It's the day of the Lord, and it, it's bringing everything full circle. It began, you know, on, with boots on the ground in Eden, and that's where it's going to end. And, and so that, that's why you get this language. And there is judgment. There is, you know, violence, you know, by God's own hand, you know, with with the returning Messiah. And you know, you you get these things. And so to pretend that there that the language isn't there, uh, again, I don't think is really wise or, or completely honest either. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think at any point we are legitimized. The Great Commission doesn't include a warfare, a physical warfare, violent strategy. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, the, it just doesn't. Now, because of what, and I use the term loosely, because of what Christians did, you know, in late antiquity and throughout the Middle Ages, again, when you married the the when you married Christianity to the state and you politicized it and again I, I use the term Christian loosely because I think most of the people involved in, in these events historically were not really believers anyway. I think they were they were exercising political power under a religious banner that may or may not have any have had any connection to recognizable New Testament theology. And most of them wouldn't have cared anyway. You know, it, it's they're, they're not doing the Great Commission. They are using coercion. And that is not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is, is never coercive. So, you know, if you're, do, if you're tracking on, on what we should be doing in terms of biblical theology, it's not what you saw in the Crusades. It's not what you saw in state churches, you know, even, even in a Reformation context. That, that's not the point. The point is not to force and coerce uh, either violently or legislatively people to become Christians or act like Christians so we can say we're Christian now. Yeah. And that is not the Great Commission. That, that's, that's an unfortunate history, you know, that you know, we, we certainly have you know, in our past, but 
that's not theologically where where they should have been and where we should certainly be. You know, we, we use the tools of evangelism, the Great Commission, and when the Lord returns at the day of the Lord, he will decide, you know, the judgment is his, it's not ours. It's yeah. his. Sure, yeah, well, and, you know, I, I, I sympathize with someone like Boyd because I share his, you know, Christian pacifist convictions, but I think what Boyd is doing is kind of like what, um, you know, the Jews of, of Jesus' day did, which was to absolutize this particular stage of God's plan, where they looked at the Torah, and they looked at circumcision, they looked at the food laws, they looked at whatever, and they said, well, this is this is what it is forever. And I think maybe what some people are doing is they're seeing, you know, gen, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and and you know, the, this you know, command to, to do no violence and those kinds of things, and they they absolutize them as well. This is just it forever, and so we can put that backwards into time and move it forwards into time, and so we can wipe away what's in the Old Testament that disagrees with that. We can you know wipe away everything that's supposed to be coming in the future as far as the judgment of God, and we just absolutize yeah, this stage. Right. It's one thing to coherently point out that we don't have any evidence in the New Testament that we should revert, okay, to a theocracy or something like that. That's certainly true. But again, that that does not mean it, it's a non sequitur to conclude from you know not reverting that this sort of thing is off the table in other parts, you know, other other stages or something like that. You know, so. You know what what usually happens you know with with someone like Boyd is you know there there there's there's plenty to agree with, and there's you know things that you're naturally going to disagree with you know it you know greg greg tends to greg is a philosophical theologian you know he's he's not an exegete um and and so his his approach you know is going to be a bit different than somebody who's not a philosophical theologian who is an exegete you know i, I I appreciate his his work. Uh, I don't, you know. Sometimes I think hermeneutically he's he's just way off the mark. But but that doesn't mean what he says doesn't have value. It has a lot of value. Um, you know, he asked the you know really good questions. We may not agree with his answers, but you know, it, it's rare to find something in his work that isn't worth thinking about. You know, I, you know, he's he's just that's a real strength of his. Yeah. One oh, thing I let me just add one, one yeah. thing. I I think I think it ultimately though you misunderstand the Old Testament or you understand it incorrectly and, and perhaps even poorly if you filter it through the New Testament. Hmm. Um, you know the, the Old Testament should be understood on its own terms, and then that will help clarify what the New Testament writers were thinking when they repurposed the Old Testament. You know, so you're, you're never going to get that sort of hermeneutical chain correct if you just, by default, filter the Old Testament through the New Testament. Because when you do that, and you skip the part of the process that says, I need to understand the Old Testament in its own context, then you do just that. You skip it. You omit it. You, you deprive the Old Testament writers who also wrote under inspiration of their message. And their message matters because the New Testament writers, I would suggest, understood their message. They, they could read the Old Testament on its own terms and understand what was going on there and, you know, repurpose it for whatever theological point they're making. I don't see these, th these things sort of as, as things to be pitted against each other. I think the Old Testament rightly understood in its in its ancient context will inform the New Testament in in amazing ways, and then from that point, we, you know that'll that'll point us in the right direction as New Testament you know believers. But we're never going to be able to do that if we just dispense with it. Yeah, okay, we can articulate the gospel without it. We can talk about Christology for the most part, you know, without it even though the, the major linchpin of Christology depend on a number of things in the Old Testament. We can do certain things and function as Christians, you know, without it. But if our goal is a complete, coherent um, biblical theology where all of the revelation of God makes sense on its own terms and we, we trace thought trajectories through 
the body of, of the, the stuff that God thought was important enough to inspire. We're not going to be able to do that. And, re- and that's going to create misunderstanding and, and, again, even, unfortunately, wrong understanding. It, could, it, it opens the gate to, to going into some directions that will be you know, either heretical or easy to abuse or leaves the Scripture vulnerable to criticism. Speaking about kind of understanding the, the Testaments in their own terms, um, kind of brings to mind something that uh, uh, Keith Giles, who had mentioned, he's kind of a popular level uh, writer who recently wrote a book called Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible. And um, he, he sort of, I think, saw this dichotomy of either you read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, or you read the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, or something to that effect. And that, that seems to me to be like a false dichotomy, that on, on one hand, you can't really understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. But then at the same time, you know, the New Testament writers speak of like reading the Old Testament without the knowledge of Jesus is almost like reading it with a veil, that there's something that you miss that's there. Right. We have we have the benefit of sort of knowing where a thought was heading. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and again, my my argument is that we should let the text build that thought. We shouldn't make assumptions about that thought by going to the end point and then bringing the end point back and filtering everything through, you know, th- necessarily through the end point. Because l- let's be honest, a lot of the way we think about the end points of our of New Testament theology we we can't help but think of them in ways that are molded by Christian tradition, you know, denominational tradition or creeds, which have nothing to do, uh, you know, with with inspiration. So mm-hmm. there there there's that potential problem, and I, I would say probably more of a problem though is we don't. You know, we, we focus on the big picture items of biblical theology, you know, God, Jesus, salvation, you know, the, and, and obviously there's, there's a reason why we would call those big picture items. But that leaves a lot of content of scripture omitted from our thinking and our discussion. We have no idea how a lot of passages contribute to the whole and even contribute to some of these big picture items. Why? Because our traditions don't deal with them. The creeds don't discuss them. The New Testament may not explicitly, you know, quote a passage in the Old Testament length. It might just lift a word or two, you know, or or, or it might cluster words from five or six passages. You know, that's very hard to pick up unless you are intentionally trying to do an, an intertextual study. Mm. There, there's just a lot that can be missed by that. So, you know, I think you can tell already, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not one to throw out, you know, the, these approaches, you know, wholesale. I do tend to think that, um, well, I mean, there are some people who just want to throw out the Old Testament. Okay, I, I get that. But I, I think the more nuanced discussion, in many cases, the people who make those discussions are not aware of what they're missing because they're not text geeks, they're not trained to do intertextual stuff. Um, and, and the people who are, typically, all they can do is ferret out nuts and bolts and don't know what in the world to do with the stuff, you know, at the end of the day. So I, I'm, I'm a big believer that exeg- theology should be based on exegesis, exegesis of text in their own context with an eye toward intertextuality, and that includes the Septuagint. And then that should become the fodder for theological thinking. Yeah. And the theological thinking should be consistent with the results of exegesis, not the results of thinking about the Bible through traditions. You know, and, and even using just the English Bible. You know, yeah. that that's the disconnect I see in, in a lot of these, you know, sorts of discussions. Well, it seems like a lot of the advocates of, of unhitching, so to speak, are, are pastors who are interested in apologetics. <laughs> and I wonder if, if it's, if, if their goal is to make it easier for them to sort of handle sort of the complications that the text brings for people in our own particular context. Well, I'm going to say this and I don't mean it to be pejorative. It's just a reality. Pastors are just given to proof texting. 
you know, and, and part of that is because their their training is limited. You know, and, and and this isn't really this isn't really their problem. I mean, it can become a problem that that's self driven, but the problem is they're they're thrown into situations where their congregation expects them to be experts at everything. Well, you went to seminary, and but they don't realize that seminary is a first degree in the theology and biblical studies. An MDiv is designed to get to have you dip your toe in the waters of all the relevant areas, and that's it. It used to be called a Bachelor's of Divinity. Yale University is the one that changed the terminology because people got tired of getting a bachelor's degree and then getting another one. It, it was kind of like demeaning, you know, like, like you were wasting your time. So they just changed the name, Master of Divinity. Well, that, that's great. But, you know, it's a first theological degree. And so pastors go to seminary, you spend three or four years there, you go to a congregation, the congregation just thinks that you know everything. And, and so, you know, pastors are put into this situation where they're, they feel like they're supposed to just be able to have answers. And and the easy way to take care of that is A, proof text, B, just don't talk about stuff you don't know about. <laughs> so which is which again is a lot of this weird old testament stuff. So it's it's a it's unfortunate in in terms of a strategy and then by omission as well. But that's just a, a boat that the way we do church has created for pastors and then they they make them sit in it you know and it, it congregations are would be really blessed if they have a pastor who can just say i don't know mm. that's going to require some thought let's do a series of sermons on that because that'll force me to get my head into that issue and and i'll benefit and you'll benefit i'm here for your spiritual care i'm not here to be you know a walking google you know for biblical studies you know it, it you know, pastors should be secure enough to to admit to their congregations that they're on a journey. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 don't know everything, and you say, well, you know, then that puts scholars in this position of thinking they know everything. I've met very few scholars that think they know everything. Scholars who are honest. You, one of the things a PhD should teach you is that it's pretty much a hopeless idea to stay up with just your discipline. There's no way you're going to be able to do it. Hmm. And it and it should teach you out of the gate that you don't know a whole lot of things. Uh, you know, they might know a, ver- a great deal about a very narrow niche, you know, within their, their field of study. But there are a lot of things, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with Ezra and Nehemiah. You know, I, I didn't do any focus, you know, work on that. Yeah. You know, I'm not an expert in a, in, a, in a bunch of different things in the Old Testament. Now, I probably have a deeper exposure to what I need to think about, you know, in, in some extraneous area, but I'm only really good, you know, at a handful of things. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what graduate school, PhD, should, should teach you. Uh, and, but that person and the pastor, both of them should know the same one thing, though. I know where to find the answers. Mm-hmm. And if you'll give me a little bit of time, I will give you a better answer than the proof text I could give you now. Yeah. One so of my... past, pastors just have it tough because their time is so limited. Again, that's our fault. It's because congregations are filled with, churches are filled with people who are not doing the work of the ministry. That's what we pay you for. You're supposed to be doing the work of the ministry. Actually, Ephesians 4 says I'm supposed to help you do the work of the ministry. Yeah. But pastors are just caught in this catch-22 situation, and I would just hope that they would be alerted to that and just tell their congregations the way it is. Sure. Well, and, and, and maybe the, the role of the pastor is less about teaching the congregation what to believe, but how to find the answers and, exactly. and how to have a, a, an approach yep. to, to finding it. Right, and a pastor should should provide boundaries, you know. A pastor should, and, and again, an MDiv program will give a pastor enough information that they know where the boundaries are. They they know where you could drift off into some really you know wacky idea. You know they can provide the you know the bumpers in the bumper lanes. You know to use the bowling analogy, they can do that. But I, I agree with you. They they should be about getting people into scripture, and and teaching them how to study. You know how to become close readers and good students of this thing we say is inspired. 
Well, speaking of inspiration, and, and maybe this could transition to a, a kind of a discussion of some of the issues that, that we look at in the Old Testament and sort of go, oh, um, what, what, what does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean for, for the, the Bible in general or the Old Testament, whatever? What does inspiration mean? Because it seems that I know that you don't maybe take the, the the most out there radical fundamentalist view of what that can mean, but I also know that you don't take the uh, <laughs> the most liberal, you know, crazy view either. So, so what, what do you see as the boundaries there for inspiration? Uh, I, I think it. I think a verse like Second Timothy three sixteen is designed to teach us that God is the ultimate point of origin for what this for what we call scripture. Hmm. You know, God uses human agency to produce that thing, but God is the ultimate. Uh, point of origin. And, and you say, well, how is God the, the ultimate point of origin? God does not whisper in the ears of the writer. God is the ultimate point of origin because God has providentially prepared each writer of Scripture throughout their entire lives for the series of events you know, at which he would essentially tap those people through providence, and in some cases more directly, to produce something in writing for the believing community and, and posterity. And again, we, we call the, the, the product of those, of those efforts the Bible. I think that whole process, I take a very providential view of inspiration. I don't view inspiration of, of biblical books as events. I view them as the result of providence. And that includes the original composer or writer. It includes any editorial hand that touches the text. God is in the entire process. He doesn't just zap people occasionally and then he's just sort of detached and disinterested, you know, until he zaps somebody else for a new book. You know, but this is how we're taught to think about inspiration. You know, again, I call it the X-Files view or the you know, paranormal view of inspiration. The Bible is not a channeled book. Okay? The Bible is the result of human agency where each hand that touched it was put in that position and place and prepared for that moment by the providential activity of God. That's how I view inspiration. Would you say that scripture in the end uh, contains or, 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 or the message or whatever, the, the wording, is ultimately what God wanted it to say? <laughs> I think God would look at, at the, again, the, the final product is, is the end point of the process, which includes writers, you know, the composers and, and editors, okay? I think God would look at the final product and say, Good job. Two thumbs up. Now, since God uses human agency, he knows, because he has prepared the person, what that person's limitations are, what their skill set is. He knows, you know, culturally how they're going to express certain ideas. You know, there is a difference between the proposition proposed and the means to propose the proposition when it comes to the text of scripture. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer that the, the, the propositions are, you know, the true statements, the truth assertions is what we need to consider inerrant. The, the modes, the means by which writers use to express those points, you know, we're, we're not asked, you know, to, you know, to, assign inerrancy to a rhetorical technique or something like that or or again using the language of appearances you know it's, it's not a scientific statement you know there but but that's the way they would express this idea i think inspiration means letting the agents god picked do their job and assume that god prepared them well and at the end of the road god again gives it two thumbs up good job that, that's what i wanted you to do you you accomplished the task i you know, but again, we're not taught to think this way. You know, we're we're somehow led to assume that the biblical writers are just like us. You know, they think just like us. You know, they, well, no, they're they're thousands of years removed. God doesn't download special advanced knowledge into the writer of Genesis. We'll say. You know, you got two ways to look at that. Either nobody except that guy, the writer, could really understand what he was writing because God gave him you know, super knowledge that he encrypted into the text, you know, which, which sort of undermines the whole enterprise of even having Scripture. Nobody can understand it now except God and this guy. You know, or, you know, we... we you know, there, there's this encryption idea 
And then there's this sort of, well, at some point in the future, we'll see how advanced this was. Mm -hmm. Well, that, great. Again, that undermines scripture as well. You know, it, it's either it's either supposed to be revelation for the community or it isn't. Again, my, my view is, is, I think, really simple. I think it's the most obvious thing in the world. God knows who, what, who he's tapping, who he's preparing to produce scripture. He knows who they are. He knows what their limitations are. He knows what he's getting. He's not surprised, you know, when, when somebody writes a creation account or a creation text, God doesn't go like facepalm, you know, like, oh, man, I should have picked somebody in the 21st century to do this. No, God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what he's getting. He knows what they're capable of producing. And so the truth propositions are more important. That's what God is after. Can you convey this idea? Do it however your audience will parse it. Can you do that? Yes, they, they can do that, and they did it, and, and God approved of the final product. Now, our task is to recognize that's what's going on, and the only way we can sort of accurately do that is to try to read Scripture on its own terms. Not our terms. You know, we don't bring our questions to the text, you know, and somehow get advanced, you know, theoretical physics in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, okay, or, or genetics in some other passage. You know, it, we don't bring our knowledge base and our questions to the text. We first have to determine what in the world were they trying to say here and then figure out how that relates in a truth proposition way and in an application way to where we're at now. And I think that shows the wisdom of God. When you detach the truth propositions from the body of the knowledge of the writer, whether that's science or something else, okay? When you detach that, you make Scripture unchangeable. If you tie it to a body of knowledge that only existed at one time, then you're in trouble because, like, let's say science, that will change. Now you've got a problem because it was stated well here and it's just hopelessly, you know, erroneous here, you know, over here now. But when you sever that, when you distinguish truth propositions from the means by which those propositions are expressed, Scripture is not chained to one time and place and one worldview. So to me, that just makes the the most sense. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a simple approach. I think it's how we would approach what we produce in writing. It doesn't seem complicated to me. The, the problem is, is we are not trained to think about Scripture that way because it's the Word of God, and God knows everything. Yeah, he does. But, but the guys he picked to write didn't, and God knew that. So then, would but but you wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say that if the New Testament sees in the Old Testament some foreshadowing or prophecy of Christ, that they're just sort of taking this out of its context and and then trying to make it sound more Jesusy. They're actually seeing some divine inspiration happening in the Old Testament that that allows an Isaiah or someone to look forward and see something, even yeah. if dimly. Right. Uh, absolutely. You know, it, they they can they can write something and. Let's take Isaiah, okay? You know, the, the, the you know, virgin birth passage. You know, it's very clear if you read beyond Isaiah 7, 14, okay? if you read like the rest of the passage in chapter 8, that the, the text itself tells you, well, you know, by the time the child is able to eat curds and honey, you know, in other words, by the time the, the child is weaned, whoever the child is, that this, that, and the other thing will be fulfilled. Okay, we, we get that. There, but there are other Old Testament writers that will play with that, plus the fact that the messages for Ahaz, who is part of the Davidic dynasty, suggests that maybe this won't be the last time that the Davidic dynasty is in trouble. Maybe God's really after saving the dynasty, not just Ahaz's butt, okay? Maybe it has something to do with the ongoingness of the messianic line. Again, that, that's not much of a leap, because he is the Davidic you know, king. And we have this covenant made with David. So the, the text itself and the writer, you know, might see something going on now that's the immediate fulfillment, but that doesn't erase the, 
the ongoing implications of what God is up to. And then Matthew, you know, looks back and he sees an analogy very obviously, you know, with Jesus in that passage and, and other passages as well. You know, it, it, again, I, I think we've, I think we create a lot of our own problems with the way we understand inspiration. In this case, the way we even understand fulfillment. Fulfillment means there has to be a one-to-one verbal correspondence. Really? Why can't it be analogy? Why can't it be fore- foreshadowing? Why can't it be typology? You know, why can't it be any of these things? Well, the answer is it can. And, and the people back then, they understood that. Again, that, that was just part of the way they looked at Scripture. But it's not part of the way the typical evangelical looks at Scripture. So the evangelical shudders, oh, what do I do now? Well, my answer is, why don't you get the, the first century Jew in your head? That would help. Okay? But, but, yeah, Rather but, but, than some creed. But maybe something like, uh, I was trying to think of a good, I, I know there's an awful lot of typology. I was trying to think of an example that may be like a one-to-one, um, maybe perhaps something like a Daniel 7, where, where Daniel's looking forward to the end of the world. <laughs> maybe. It, it, can, it can work that way, but it doesn't have to work only that way. Sure. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, well, so kind of keeping that in mind, I mean, let's take, for example, the the, the slaying of the Canaanites. I mean... I, I, I don't suspect that you would say, well, you know, that's just something where, you know, you know, that's just what the human authors, that's their perspective. And that's what they want. They, you know, God did not want us to think that, that he himself had commanded uh, the slaying of the Canaanites, for example. Or, or how would you look at a passage like that that seems to be kind of at the center of, of some of this controversy about what we do with the Old Testament? Have you read Unseen Realm? I have. Yeah. Okay. So you, you know where I'm going to go with this, but of course, a lot of your audience, you know, would not. I think specifically, to me, it's not a coincidence that the verbs of killing, you know, the verbs of extermination happen in places where either the giant clans were sighted or said to live. I do not think that's a coincidence. There are other verbs of conquest that involve just driving out and dispossessing that don't necessarily involve killing. I think both are on the table. Uh, but but I think what what we can gather from that, again, this is the short version of it, is that the the targets of harem, okay, the devotion to destruction, are specifically those individuals that were perceived to, you know, be there as a result of, you know, what happened in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. They are the vestiges of that. So there's a lot of collateral damage because they're scattered throughout the land. They live among the, the you know, the, the quote-unquote normal people of the land. Now, we, we can talk about you know, well, how literalistic is this? You know, do we have to talk about genetics here? You know, the, at the very least, at the very least, you would have people who believe that certain peoples there, based on certain physical characteristics, namely they're, they're taller than the average person, okay? They're, you know, they're significantly taller. And my view of this is that there's, you know, six and a half, seven feet tall like Goliath, okay? I don't believe Goliath was nine feet, six inches tall based on the Dead Sea Scrolls. But there's some physical marker. And these people are associated with the supernatural rebellion of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And they are the specific targets. And you say, why? Isn't that mean? No, you have to understand why why that's viewed the way it is. And, and this is not something that I can really digest in, in, into five minutes here. But it has to do with the Babylonian backdrop to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and how Babylon is an agent of supernatural and human rebellion in biblical thought. Uh, what happens in the garden is traceable back again to, to the larger Babylonian matrix of ideas, you know, all this kind of stuff. These people at the time of the conquest were vestiges of supernatural opposition to God. And that translated into a lethal threat. A lethal threat and a spiritual threat and a supernatural threat to the people of God. And there's there's a theological rationale as to why these groups were targeted. And I also don't think it's a coincidence that when some of them escape, okay, Joshua, defi- 
the conquest begins with the with encountering giants and it ends with the, the con, you know the, the encountering of the giants it's just it's just the way it is i didn't write the bible that's just the way it is you go all the way back to numbers book of numbers that that's what you got so when some of them escape when joshua is defining victory in the conquest in joshua 11 there are no more Anakim in the land, except for the ones that got away, you know, to the Philistine cities of Gath, you know, and all that kind of stuff, with the cities of Gath and Ashdod, which later turn out to be the Philistine cities, which is where we find Goliath and his brothers. And who gets rid of the, the last vestiges of the giant clans? Who does that? David. Hmm. Who does it before David? Joshua, Yehoshua. Okay, there's a foreshadowing for you. Moses, the prophet like unto Moses, there's a foreshadowing for you. David, the messianic archetype. Again, these things are not coincidental. I think they have to be, the conquest needs to be read as, as something that actually happens, but there's a theological rationale behind it that the people at the time believed and we are supposed to understand was spiritual warfare as well. And that's why it is cast the way it is cast. It is not indiscriminate. It's not random. It's not like, you know, unfettered bloodlust or something like that. There is a point to be made, a theological point to be made in the events, you know, however they played out in real time, you know, in the events that are going on in the conquest. And that's why it's written the way it's written. I think what Boyd points out, what he sees as sort of an asynchronicity, <laughs> Uh, between uh, what God says, you know, I will drive them out of the land, and then you get there, and then, oh, well, well now uh, he's saying that I want you to kill him. I, I think that's a, that's a very poor way to approach it, because what that, what that does is legitimize disconnecting first-person command and intention from God, and when God uses human agency. Mm -hmm. That happens in lots of ways and in lots of circumstances. So if you disconnect it there, why aren't you disconnecting it elsewhere? And if you disconnect it elsewhere, then you got some real problems. Yeah. You know, both on the positive, the negative stuff, and the positive stuff. You know, you can't just cherry pick which, which when the combination is linked and when it's disconnected, just to suit your tastes. I just, mm -hmm. I just don't think that's wise at all. So now, specifically with the with the Canaanite conquest, um, you talked about you know, the, this theological ex explanation being there. And um, would, would you would you look back and read that and say, this is a historical event and their theological explanation is an accurate one? Or or would you say, um, it's not a historical event or it's not, <laughs> whatever. In, in any case, uh, where do you, you know, what are we now supposed to, when we look back at that and think, okay, God has inspired this text and the final product is, is what he wants it to be? This is a, this is a, from God's perspective, this is a satisfactory telling of things that actually happened, hmm. done through human agency. Nobody has a tape recorder. Nobody's got a camcorder. Okay, so we, you know, we, we frankly, you can say both those things about your life. Mm-hmm. Right. So what's history? I don't think you can tell me the story of your own life. Did you write everything down? Can you source it? You know, the sources you do have, do you have two or three other sources to correlate it? Did you interview everyone to get an unbiased viewpoint? Again, the way we look at history is unworkable in our own lives. Hmm. Right? I think we just need to own that. And so I think, you know, yeah, we have the conquest, the exodus, whatever it is. This is a satisfactory telling of, you know, probably a summary for sure, of stuff that happened in real time and the motivations and the thinking behind it. Now, how do I, you know, like pick apart every sentence of that or every, you know, how, how, does, how does every sentence correlate to like what really happened? I, I don't know. I'm not omniscient. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's, and there's no visual or auditory record of it. Yeah. I think that the telling of it, though, is faithful to the intent. Again, it, God would give it two thumbs up. Good job. You know, they'll understand what's going on here. They'll know that something happened. They'll know that this stuff happened. And they'll know why. They'll know what, what we were all thinking here, what the point was. But, but nobody can know. And God wasn't interested in Because if God was interested in giving us exhaustive, you know, moment by moment, color commentary on every conversation and event, he, he was perfectly capable of doing that. 
you know, be like a hundred volumes long, you know, but, you know, it, it, God is perfectly capable of doing this. So the fact that we don't have that ought to tell us, yeah. you know, in, in our little pinheaded minds here, it ought to tell us that that wasn't the point. And, and I would hope we realize, again, the way we talk about history is in many instances unappliable to us or anybody we know. I think we need to just stop doing that. We need to stop judging Scripture by a standard that we cannot even apply to ourselves. doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess kind of where, where, where I was kind of going with that question is we look at certain passages like maybe uh, you know, Yahweh riding on the clouds like Baal or uh, you know, the, the, the firmament in the heavens and, and just different ways you can understand that. But I think the most common way to understand it is that it's this you know, physical thick material <laughs> um and, oh, I, don't, I don't think you could i don't think you could look up and see yahweh riding on a on a yeah. fiery chariot through the clouds yeah i think this, this is imagery this is emblematic language yeah. that is designed to teach a certain point in that case about yahweh and of course in canaan about Baal. yeah you know, that, that's where the competition is well, I wonder though, as you're connecting, you know, these threads between the creation and then uh, the, the 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 Nephilim and Noah, and then moving into the conquest, you sort of had this thread here. And some of those things we look at and we think, okay, well, maybe maybe we don't take this literally. And other things we look at, like the conquest, we say, okay, we do take this literally. We we, we at least take it as history, understanding, of course, the limitations of what history is and the purposes of the author. Um, but you wouldn't look at like the Canaanite conquest and say, yeah, well, this is I this think... is a spiritualized account of of something. Right. I think mythic history is still history. It's not history like we want it to be history. Mm-hmm. But again, my, my point is that we can't we couldn't even tell the story of our own lives the way we think we want history in some other area. Mm-hmm. I, I think we have a very inconsistent hermeneutic there. We have a very inconsistent methodology. So to me, you know, others would say mythic history isn't history. I'd say mythic history is history. You know, we, we can learn what happened. We don't necessarily learn exactly how or exactly why or exactly to what extent, but we have a good idea, like, what the motivations were, what the thinking was, and that sort of thing. You know, I, I'm not offended by mythic history. I'm also not offended by supernaturalism. You know, could, could there be actual, you know, real-time descendants of the sons of God and the daughters of men? That's on the table for me, because I'm not a deity. I don't know that I can say, and have any right to say, well, that, can't, that couldn't have happened because why? Well, you can't put it under a microscope. It's, it's, it doesn't conform to scientific inquiry. You're, yeah, I, I know, I know. But neither does deity, all right? Neither does God. So I don't really know. And I'm comfortable with saying I don't really know. So that's on the table. Mythic history is on the table. Um, again, we, we have to be omniscient. And I know, I know a lot of people just will not admit this. They'll pretend that they don't have to admit it, but they do. Okay, We'd have to be omniscient to know where exactly to land here. Because we are not deity. We are not familiar with the properties and qualities and attributes of deity. Because we're not that. So we need to stop pretending as though we can make those judgments. We have no basis to say or evaluate or claim what deity can do and what it can't do. That's just the simple truth. And I know that's not comfortable to a lot of people, but that is the truth. So when I, if I would hear somebody, well, this never happened because how could this happen? You know, how could, how could this and that? Okay. What you're telling me is that the basis of your evaluation is what we know about science, correct? Yeah. And science deals with the physical world, right? Yep. Well, since when is deity subject or part of the physical world? It's not. By definition, it's not. So now you're pressed to an uncomfortable question, or at least an uncomfortable realization. Well, I believe in God and the Trinity and Jesus, and the concept of salvation, none of those things are subject to the tools of science. Frankly, everything that we believe 
that we would say is important to believe as Christians does not conform to the tools of science. Well, I, I would say you know, most of the things that we believe, even not as Christians, <laughs> are, not, are not something I, you can I, analyze under a microscope. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So why, again, I, I would go back, I'd circle back to my first question. Now, tell me again what the basis of your denial is and how that makes sense. Again, you, you can't. If you're honest, you can't do it. And so for me, it's like I just say, I don't know. Here are the options. Someday, you know, when I'm, you know, with the Lord or whatever, I'll, you know, okay, it was this one and not that one. You know, the shell game's over, okay? Then, then I'll know. But until then, I don't feel that I have the right to say that what a, what a biblical author tells me about the spiritual world and what philosophy, again, the way it, it would intelligently talk and coherently talk about, you know, a spiritual reality. I can't move that discussion into the physical, you know, realm and then say, well, it doesn't work here. Well, no kidding, it doesn't work there because that isn't where it belongs. All right, to me that is an illegitimate tactic and a poor hermeneutic. And and honestly, if you if you if you do all that stuff and you know you're doing it, then you're dishonest. Well, or 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 to expand the kind of the conversation we're having about some of the ways that some folks are, are handling some of these Old Testament passages. Any time that you want to read in your own personal perspective, your own cultural values into the text, and then you dissect the things that you don't like or the things that don't seem to comport with your own view, then then, then you're you're not proceeding honestly. Right. I mean, just what whatever happened. I mean, why why is it a sin to just say, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't know, and and especially when it comes to you know, supernatural talk, you know, all of this stuff ultimately goes back to a single proposition, just one. Is there a God or not? Okay, what what makes greater, what has greater coherence? The idea of God existing or not. And that is an idea that has been well defended for millennia without appeal to Scripture or, any, you know, anybody else's Scripture. Just the idea that there is a, a, the possibility of a spiritual reality, an intelligent, personal, spiritual reality. Uh, again, and, and if, if that cannot be dispensed with coherently, then everything else extends from it and has to be evaluated on, this, on the same philosophical grounds. Well, if we, if we have to admit there's a God, or you know, at least that, that's a coherent possibility, can that God do anything? Well, that would kind of make sense if, if he's dead, you know. Well, could one of those things be like to prompt people or prepare people to write something down and, and, and he was happy with it or else he would have, you know, gotten somebody else. He would have called on somebody else in the class. You know, could, could, could God have, you know, created, you know, flesh or created beings that could assume flesh that could go down and, you know, mess with humanity? You know, all of these things extend from the single proposition of deity. Because at that point, if you have deity on the table, then deity can do what you know a deity can do. In other words, you can't evaluate it in any other different way other than philosophical, rational coherence. You, you can't put it under a microscope. And that's where all of these things go. And it, it makes people uncomfortable when you're talking about Genesis 6 or you know, some other weird you know, passage. But it gives them great comfort when you're talking about a trinity when you're talking about sin and salvation. So I agree with you. If you're taking the comfortable, oh, I love this stuff, and then the other stuff you just want to, I'm going to pretend that's not there, or I'm just going to just say it's not there. That's just not honest. It's really not. doesn't mean you have an answer. doesn't mean you've figured everything out. It just means you're, I don't know. That's that's the most honest answer I can give you. Yeah. Dr. Heiser, thank you so much for, for being here, for doing this. And, and people who want to learn more about what you're doing and your books and your podcast, where, where would they go to do that? Well, the nerve center is drmsh.com. That's my homepage. That's doctor. Uh, that's a short for Dr. Michael yeah. S. Heiser. <laughs> DR for doctor and then my initials. Yep. This is, it's just so clever. I know. Um, but if, you know, if people are interested in the discussion, and again, it, I would recommend Unseen Realm 
on Amazon, you know, read, read the reviews. Most it's got over 900 reviews now and most, most of them are not pastors. <clears throat> you know, I'm, it's just, it, it's, it's an academic work. It's not a scholarly book, but it's an academic work written for anybody who cares. It's very readable. Uh, had a good editor. And that's to do with the sort of the supernatural, the supernatural worldview. And actually, there's, there's a, com- yeah. a, a book that goes with that uh, um, called Supernatural. That's more popularly uh, yeah. written. Supernatural right. is a is a distillation of the main points of Unseen Realm. I like to put it this way: Unseen Realm is the book with footnotes. Mm-hmm. The dirty little secret of Unseen Realm is that nothing in the book is original to Mike. It is entirely based on peer-reviewed research, and not just evangelical sources. But if you don't really read books with footnotes, read Supernatural because that will distill again the relevant stuff. Yeah, and then and that, that all has to do with the supernatural worldview and the existence of other supernatural beings that we could call angels or well, look, sometimes look, gods, look the, Elohim. Yeah, look at the subtitle of Unseen Realm. It's deliberate, recovering the supernatural worldview of the Bible. Yeah, that suggests I think we've lost it. <laughs> yeah, and and I do. I'll I'll own that. So that would be uh, that would be the one I'd recommend, or again, the light version, uh, Supernatural. And the podcast for people who are afraid to shell out money just yet, but once they <laughs> once they listen to the podcast, they'll want to. Yeah, uh, is is the Naked Bible Podcast. Yeah, Naked Bible Podcast. That's the URL for the website, just like it sounds. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Heiser. Yep. Thank you.